Hello and welcome to another installment of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Emre Safagurkan. Today our guest is Didem Havleolu, an assistant professor of Turkish literature at Istanbul Şehir University. Dr. Havleolu, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So our topic today is women writers and gender in Ottoman literature. And this is a really fascinating topic because most Ottoman historians can name quite a few writers. Katib Çelebi, Mustafa Ali, historian, Ashik Çelebi, Evliya Çelebi, and so forth. But it's probably hard for most of us to name a prominent woman author. And so the question I want to start the discussion with is, were there women intellectuals in the Ottoman Empire? And if so, why don't we know more about them? So to be able to um, discuss this uh, and very important question, I think we should try to define the Ottoman intellectual world. It's a world of composers and consumers um, of uh, culture with their own contributions, sometimes in the form of composition and sometimes in the form of financial support. In this period, we're talking about early modern period, we're talking about a court system I don't mean only court at the palace or court uh, at Shehzadeh's palace in provinces or courts of intelligentsia. Um, you know, it's more common than that. Like you know, I'm talking about coffee houses, mehanes, all sorts of uh, places um, where influential men and women come together and they discuss the current issues and um, share their poetry, read books, and, uh, and produce culture. So uh, the physical space can be various, but the practice is the same. Uh, a group of people come together to recite poetry, read books, play music, discuss politics while they eat and drink at a lovely place. So besides libraries and books, people perform all kinds of artful behavior in front of uh, a like-minded audience. Quite different than what we know about today's intellectual world. Today, everything happens in written form, uh, on paper or on the screen. And back, or in podcast form. Exactly. And uh, so back, back, back in the day, uh, it was happening in literary courts. So the space and performance is quite different, uh, although the definition of an intellectual can be similar. And that is a person not from a specific profession, uh, but uh, has a wide range of knowledge in different subjects, especially in liberal arts. I think it's important to define this uh, person also. An intellectual is not defined by a any kind of profession, that is to say, a doctor and an engineer or an academician for that matter, doesn't have to be an intellectual. Uh, An intellectual can converse in wide range of uh, subjects. So when we put it this way, we realize a few things. First of all, we realize there are networks of people who are included in uh, in the closed circle of the court system. Uh, This is very important because, uh, as you can see, it's all about being able to connect with certain people uh, rather than being a bureaucrat, um, holding an administrative position at the state level, or being published. So it starts with certain kind of education in respective fields, uh, which allows them to be um, you know, uh, well-versed uh, in a variety of subjects and, of course, being trained to be familiar uh, with the specific manners encoded in the t- court tradition. So we know that where there are etiquette books, uh, such as Mustafa Ali's Kawaid al-Majalis, uh, which explains appropriate behavior uh, in these circles. Uh, so we're talking about a citizenship, 
which is codified with certain behavioral pattern. A person learns rather than uh, born into the system. This means being privileged or coming from a privileged background uh, can be helpful, but it's not necessary. And this further means that anybody who could have this kind of education uh, can be included in these circles. Poets from the countryside who doesn't have any access to palace court or that kind of education that happens in the court can be included. So the son of Araya can actually be included in this? Everybody can be included. Actually, I want to give two examples from the poet, uh, poet's biographies. Um, uh, one of them is Zati uh, from uh, early modern period. He's from Balıkesir, and he moves to Istanbul to become a poet. He opens a shop around Beyazıt Mosque, and he starts uh, with uh, Remilcili, fortune-telling, and, uh, and then composes talismans, and composes poetry by order. And so this is how he earns his livelihood. Meanwhile, he composes poetry. But uh, interestingly, in time, his shop becomes a regular stop for poetry enthusiasts. And, uh, and so he could find patrons like Muenyad Zadeh or Jafar Çelebi, who were poets themselves. And so, you know, and they're supporting other poets like Zati. So he was never... He could never get patrons from the palace. He was never part of the court in the palace, uh, but he was from the public. Counter uh, example would be Baki, our most celebrated uh, poet. Um, he was the student of Zati, and um, uh, he was. Uh, but then he was fortunate enough to be educated in better places, uh, which secured him administrative positions. So he was fortunate in, in enough uh, to uh, have um, powerful patrons uh, who supported his work. Actually, these two poets' lives uh, shows us uh, that there are variety ways of like being involved in cultural production at this time. This will bring us to women. Uh, we'll see that there's not principally wrong uh, for women to take part in this. Likewise, we have female uh, poets uh, from as early as 15th century, but there are very few. Uh, so the question shouldn't be, can women contribute? Obviously, they could, but I think uh, we should rather ask why there were very few of them. Well, why do you think that is? Um, we know very few of them because these are the very few women who could be part of the privileged group or male privileged group who uh, was dominating the tradition of writing and uh, who left uh, records uh, for us. Uh, when we study social history, literature, uh, we base our research on these uh, texts and what we know today uh, is based on those texts. Uh, so what is left out, we don't know. But of course, if it's left out and if we don't know today, it doesn't mean that it didn't exist. So uh, it has a a lot to do the way we study literature today. Uh, there are instances we come across once in a while, just like Mehmet Çavuşoğlu did. Um, uh, he coincidentally discovered a 16th century uh, woman poet uh, in a mejmoa. Her name is Nisai, and uh, she wrote an elegy for Shehzade Mustafa, uh, who was executed by his father, Suleiman. And she wrote this uh, poem in a satiric tone, and maybe this is 
mostly, most likely the reason uh, she was, you know, excluded from the major um, histories. Uh, for instance, she says, Bir urus cadısının sözün kulağına koyup, mekru aile aldığını ben ol acüzeye uyup, bal ömrün hasılı ol servi azada kıyıp, bi terahum şahı alem nitti sultan Mustafa. You allow the words of a Russian witch into your ears, deluded by tricks and deceit, you did the bidding of that spiteful hag. You slaughtered that swaying cypress, fruit of life's orchard. What has the compassionless monarch of the world has done to Sultan Mustafa? So maybe that's right. So because you know, in these lines, Nisai actually implicitly refers to Huram Sultan uh, by her ethnicity uh, and accuses Sultan Suleiman and Rustam Pasha, uh, his Grand Vizier, uh, for um, you know for the conspiracy against. Uh, Mustafa and their killing, uh, and this is pretty uh, bold, isn't it? I mean, it's uh, you know he, she's very critical, and uh, who knows why she was not included in the biographical dictionaries? Like Tezkire writers didn't mention her at all. You know, it's very likely that she she didn't come from a privileged class, or maybe they didn't consider her poetry um, valuable. So what happened to her? Did, did she get any punishment? Because no. I'm trying to make a comparison between him and the Figani, who wrote a similar words about Ibrahim Pasha. Mm. You know, two Ibrahims came to this world, one, you know, built it, the other destroyed it twice, and then he got hung by the... Right. By but maybe I, a better comparison would be with uh, Yahya Bey at the same time, who wrote another elegy for Shehzade Mustafa. And um, it is... Beautiful. It's a beautiful piece of uh, poetry, and he's very critical. But um, nothing happens to him. Uh, the only thing is that uh, Rustam Pasha loses his position, not because only uh, Yahya's poem, of course, because uh, of the upheaval, and that's you know why it, I think it's you know there were so many indications of this. People were not happy. Uh, what happened, um, and uh, and Yahya Bey or Nisai uh, was not, of course, punished because of this, uh, because of what they wrote about the incident. So yes, we uh, know of some women, but uh, it is um, for sure that uh, we have very little. So at this point, I want to ask you a little bit about where women were receiving education in the Ottoman Empire. To write these types of literature, they must receive some formal or informal education, but one would assume that they didn't have the same access to certain educational institutions. Could you explain a little how mm-hmm. uh, a woman writer would learn how to write, mm-hmm. etc.? Right. Uh, well, I think we should, again, start with the larger picture and then talk about Ottoman's approach to education and the education on, uh, of women in particular. Uh, for our purposes today. Um, for instance, Kanalzade Ali Efendi suggests that girls should be educated just like boys. And his arguments are based on uh, the main tenets of Islam. Even though apparently the common inclination at that time uh, was teaching girls only reading, not writing. But uh, Kanalzade says that no, we should uh, educate our girls just like the way we do for boys. He also adds that it's important to educate girls in different ways according to their traditional roles as wives and mothers. In fact, throughout history, this is always the case and universally accepted uh, reason uh, for educating women so that they can become uh, good wives and mothers. Uh, but for the Ottomans, uh, first of all, we know that Subyan Mektepleri, 
the primary uh, schools uh, for both boys and girls were available. They were actually very common in the 16th century that, uh, for instance, we know uh, in the city of Bursa, there were about 134 Sibyan and which shows that, you know, it's pretty, um, you know, common. Their curriculum was um, pretty common. Uh, they received basic education, uh, such as uh, learning, reading and writing, uh, grammar and behavioral conduct. And um, so this was like available for boys and girls um, so as for the privileged class though uh, most of it, their education happened at home and this is uh, the case for both boys and girls again um, and after this kind of primary education either at Sibyan Mektebi or um, at home um, medicine education is available for boys but I would like to mention one more thing uh, other than these options. Um, I think it's important um, for the Ottomans and for a women's education in Ottomans, uh, Ottomans. The option of mystical training. I don't think it's, uh, and it's only a coincidence that most of the poets have tarikat affiliation, such as Mevlevi, Bektashi, or Halveti paths. As a matter of fact, I, I, th- I don't think it would be wrong to suggest that poets from the margins, such as women, or again, poets outside uh, of the close circle of uh, Istanbul, uh, they uh, probably took the advantage of uh, mystical paths. So it looks like we're talking about a different kind of education system, which is not similar to our understanding of modern institutionalized uh, liberal arts education. That kind of education doesn't happen until 19th century. For instance, you know, rushdies were opened um, and uh, different options were available in 19th century. So we have more information uh, from the 19th century. In terms of arts education, uh, we need to consider some details which will be uh, relevant to our understanding of women's education uh, because we are talking about a specific uh, kind of education. And I think Jem Behar explains uh, in his book Ashk Olmayınca Meşk Olmaz very well with the notion of meshk. It's the traditional way of studying arts, uh, and it means uh, working with a master and practice countless times to uh, learn a form of art. Uh, This is also the way poetry, painting, calligraphy was learned. In fact, it's it's still the way uh, one learns the traditional art today. If uh, we look at poetry, we see the traces of this kind of education. For instance, the tradition of writing nazires, parallel poetry, uh, is a sign of this kind of uh, education. And this kind of education means a close relationship with a teacher and years of practice uh, imitating what is accepted to be good poetry. Actually, Mehmet Kalpaklı calls um, the practice of nazires as a part of um, academia of poetry. Uh, so this is the nature of training. And uh, besides, of, besides the appreciation of natural intuition or talent, there's a great deal of, deal of emphasis uh, put on training within the tradition. So being creative uh, and good poet means someone who can use the traditional tools uh, very well uh, to create new ways of using them. Uh, so this is the value. It's not, you know, uh, creating something out of a blue in the you know completely new way, uh, but uh, using the tools really well 
uh, that's that's valued more. There are challenges for us to place women within this frame. First of all, we come across with the same problem. Uh, how could a woman be close to a man who could be her uh, master, teacher, or hoja? And there are cases that we know it happened, but still, from our perspective, our from our modern perspective, it's a puzzle. Uh, how could that happen? And the other one is actually uh, for women's advantage because this kind of education means that one didn't have to go to medrese or any kind of formal education uh, to become an artist or an intellectual. As a matter of fact, medrese education is necessary for only one thing for our purposes today, I should say. That's for an uh, administrative position. And this is where we can highlight a misconception uh, about the poets. Uh, the common idea is that uh, Ottoman poets were administrators of the state, sultan, bureaucrats, some elite group educated in palaces and medreses. Uh, it's true that there were poets like that, but it wasn't necessary. Um, so this was an advantage for women that they could become poets within this educational system. So from the picture you draw for us, I understood that the women, the Ottoman society was not, a, even though being a gender space, it's not as segregated as a modern mind might think. So you have mentioned that, you know, there were male masters and female students and, you know, examples like that. So what does it tell us about the participation of women in Ottoman social life? Mm-hmm. Well, it's true that the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman society is organized with uh, uh, this notion of gendered space. Then a good uh, example is harem, uh, which is a gendered space where uh, men and women are brought up to become Muslim men and women. So space is not uh, defined only by gender, but also by age. Uh, when they are still young, boys could be included in harem. So when it comes to public space, though, uh, in early modern uh, Ottoman times uh, or at any other Middle Eastern or European city, um, the public space is adult male space. Women and children entering, entering this uh, public space, they had to be protected in different ways according to their uh, status. That is to say, the higher the status, uh, the more they need to be protected. This situation is interestingly related to the one in England, for instance. Uh, If a woman circulates freely uh, around the streets, uh, she's considered loose and out of place. uh, And her unprotectedness uh, signifies availability. And boys are in the similar uh, situation. They are considered to be at risk in the streets. Having said that, uh, literary and entertainment courts are different and they are operated with uh, different rules. Uh, First of all, it's a private setting, although it's a common place, uh, but it's not public. Um, In other words, it's open only for the members uh, of this court. Uh, And each court have different members. Uh, So the question is, can we identify members of a certain early modern court? Uh, because it's actually curious, the sources suggest the possibility of co-ed courts. The first and most obvious hint uh, for that is the existence of female poets, because poetry was not written to be read on paper or on, in books, but it was composed to be performed in, for, in front of an audience. So, um, so that makes us think 
uh, that how uh, women could perform their uh, poetry. Maybe they had some; uh, they had their own female courts, um, but then male writers who wrote about them wouldn't be able to get into those courts. So it's a puzzle again that you know. It, for them to be included in Teskires or in the larger history of uh, Ottoman literature, uh, some male writers should know about them. Turin Deirmanjol recently um, talked about all these book sharing mm-hmm. uh, all over Istanbul. People get, come together and listen to stories, generally Shahname, for instance. So perhaps do we have similar instances where they listen to a work mm-hmm. written by a female poet? in a book that exchanges hands all over Istanbul? Could this be a way of... I think this is an excellent um, um, point that Tulindir Manjola makes. Um, I mean, uh, she shed light on something very important, um, the, um, you know, reading culture of the, the Ottomans at certain time. Uh, but I, I'm not aware of uh, any studies like uh, uh, based on women's reading culture so far. Uh, for the Ottomans, uh, so it needs to be done. So it's it's a, it would be very valuable. But another uh, hint that we uh, have that you know women and men actually or probably were in the same court is that the relationships, the networks uh, were mentioned in Tezkeres, uh men and between men and women. So that's important. For instance, um, one of the very early uh, poets, Mihri, uh, we know that her master was Muayyad Zadeh. I just mentioned his name while I was talking about Zati as his patron. He's a He's one of the major patrons of arts at this time. He was also uh, Mihri's master, teacher. He was also the Musahib of Bayezid II when Bayezid was the governor in Amasya. One more thing, uh, Ashik Chilebi, who wrote about all of this, was the grandson of Meyedzade. So you see the whole the, the whole social map of uh, relationships, actually, uh, how they're linked to each other. Looks like Meizad as a patron of arts uh, is the center of those relationships. But why do we have lots of information in Ashik Chelebi about Mihri Hatun? Is because probably you know he listened to stories that his grandfather uh, told him. Um, so this is actually a hint that you know uh, what men and women were. Uh, you know, took place in the same court. Another good example, actually, another woman poet from earlier, actually, from fir- uh, 14th century, uh, Zeynep Houghton. Uh, Teskira writers are very clear uh, when they say that she used to write poetry, but then she gets married, uh, she stops composing and contacts with men. They clearly say that, you know, she prevents contact with men. So, which also suggests that, you know, writing poetry or composing poetry, I should say, means a contact with men. I should maybe give a last example, which is very significant, I think, and from another uh, woman poet, Aisha Hubba Hatun, um, who was uh, the Musahibe of Selim II. So there is something called Musahibe. Exactly. Like a female favorite. Musahib. Exactly. You, you know about Musahib. Right, the, right. The male favorites, but I didn't know about Musahibe mm-hmm. as a female favorite of the Sultan. Right. Well, actually, uh, her husband was the Musahib of Selim 
the second, first. This is how she gets into the palace. And after he dies, uh, she remains there. And she becomes a Messiah of Salem. And there's one more interesting thing that uh, my colleague, uh, Hatija Ainur, and I, we just discovered recently uh, while we are working on um, Kasida is written for women. Uh, there's actually a very nice uh, poem written for Aisha Hubba by a poet named uh, Jinani, who was another courtier at the time. Um, and this is significant because, you know, here is a man writing, praising a woman. Uh, usually, Kasidas are written uh, for a purpose. I mean, uh, because, you know, the, then the poet expects something in return, usually um, monetary awards. Uh, so um, so maybe she was a patron of arts as well. And this wouldn't be surprising because we are used to seeing uh, female patrons, especially in architecture. I mean, we know that, you know, uh, palace women or pri- privileged women, or we should say women who had the means, created public spaces, commissioned uh, buildings, uh, and they were the female patrons of arts. So it's not unusual, actually. Related to then female participation in social life again, um, to what extent could they actually travel around or like make money and you know be a part of this economic life as, mm-hmm. as, as patrons of it? You know because you have to have some sort of a social uh, network. You have to some sort of, sort of a, mm-hmm. you have to have some sort of financial means in order to be able mm-hmm. to you know patron to be a patron of art. We have evidence of payments made to Mihri Houghton, for instance, in Beyazat II's Inayat Deftarleri, gift registries. Uh, several payments made to Mihri Houghton. Although so far we know that they were friends. And uh, so maybe uh, it was, um, so it's understandable. They grew up together. And, but the important part here, uh, she made money out of poetry. It's important because this shows us that there's nothing wrong for a woman producing or composing poetry. Mm-hmm. It's a way of legitimizing the, the work uh, she's producing. It is, you know, a common practice, actually. Poets make money at this time. Why not women? So women made money as well. Actually, um, this is part of the tradition. And, and when we come to 19th century, we have more evidence that women also made money out of poetry. Uh, for instance, Moralizade Leila Hanum writes about, um, you know, or complains that uh, times are different now. You know, poetry doesn't make money anymore, and she's just desperately looking for a patron. Um, so it's, you know, it's a common practice, and I think, you know, female poets were not different than male poets in this respect. But when it comes to traveling. I think it's an important question because um, traveling is important at this time for any kind of artist because they are they travel from one court to another, you know, and they are looking for patrons like that. And so, when we talk about a woman poet, we should ask this question: that could she travel? Actually, is there any female poet that came from Samarkand, Istanbul, for instance? I don't know any. What exactly? I mean, that's a very good question. I don't know any. But um, I mean, again, uh, uh, from the things that I know, I can say uh, that there are again hints uh, that you know they uh, actually traveled. Again, I can give you uh, an 
example from Mihri's case. Uh, for instance, you know, she has a poem she, uh, where she talks about Gurbet. She says, Etti gerçi ki felek Mihri vatandan seni dur. Gurbetin hoşçeymiş hayli dile alemi de. Truly, Mihri, the heavens have put you far from your homeland, but the condition of exile is pleasant to many hearts. So she clearly talks about being on an exile. Uh, I, I actually translated gurbet as exile. Maybe it's not, you know, it doesn't completely give the, uh, you know, meaning. But she's talking about gurbet. Uh, she's from Amasya. And as I already mentioned that she grew up with Bayezid when he was a governor uh, of Amasya, Muezade, and the other poets at that time. When uh, Bayezid uh, moves to the throne, when Bayezid becomes the sultan, all the entourage, all the poets and artists in Amasya moves to Istanbul. Uh, so then we ask, did she move as well? It's very likely. Now we know that she was paid in Istanbul. And uh, and she, why not? Uh, I mean, it's very possible. And again, when we move to 19th century, we have better evidence. Like, for instance, for a, a poet uh, named Sri Hanım, poet from Diyarbakır, she travels to Baghdad with her son and she presents a kaside to the governor of that time uh, and then she moves back to uh, Diyarbakir and then she travels to Istanbul, uh, finds a patron there, um, actually Princess Zeynep uh, and uh, her husband um, become uh, there and become her patron. Uh, she lives with them. So there are cases uh, that we know women made money and women uh, traveled. But I should say, uh, I believe before the 19th century, traveling was not easy uh, for anybody. I mean, think about uh, 17th century, I mean, the rebellions. It wasn't safe, and transportation um, options were limited. And it was not a gender issue, what I'm trying to say. It's not the gender issue. It's more like a political and economic issue um, to be able to travel. Well, when we look at the Ottoman past in this regard, we find a lot of surprises. Even you think of an ashik. An ashik is traditionally a man who sings love songs, but we find that, for example, Turkmen women uh, also performing role of ashik and even a few into the modern era. So a lot of time we find a lot of surprises and maybe the reason why we know so little about women literati, as we've called them, is perhaps because of a sources issue. And I've gathered from what you've been saying so far that a lot of the sources we have about women's writings are indirect, that we only know about them from biographies or you find them in a death tear mentioned. What, what kind of sources do you use to write the history of uh, women's authors in the Ottoman Empire and do their poems get transmitted very often. I think everything. Uh, we should be able to use everything. Of course, there are, there's not much uh, left uh, from um, there's not much left by women. Uh, at least we don't know much documents um, created and composed by women. Uh, mostly, what we know about women transmitted uh, by men. The the ones uh, written by women are necessary uh, to be uh, analyzed systematically and comparatively both horizontally and vertically, through uh, time and space. Uh, this hasn't been done yet, uh, and so, um, so this, is, this is one thing. So we should really uh, look at the uh, documents um, produced by women and uh, work them, uh, work, study them comparatively. 
Uh, this is one thing. But everything else can be a source uh, as long as they're used with appropriate analytical tools. Uh, and there are very good examples of such. Uh, for instance, um, Leslie Pierce's work is, gui- is a guiding force for us. Uh, she makes use of court documents, canonames, travel literature, everything even, could be relevant to her questions, right? Even even European sources such as uh, right. Relazioni he uses for and she she uses she's one she of the first one unexpectedly um, this a source which was very, at the time very even though familiar to many European historians very unfamiliar to Ottomans she used in, mm-hmm. in her work. Just, no, uh, she uses everything and uh, but the the key here is uh, the way she uses those documents because uh, for instance she challenges uh, one of the common misconceptions of. Kadınlar um, Sultanatı, the reign of women coined by Ahmet Rufik. And uh, so, you know, these two historians are uh, talking about the same documents, but, you know, they the picture they draw is completely different. So approach is very important, too. So, yes, we have limited sources. Uh, we should find more with right or appropriate questions. And then to be able to... Uh, extract information from uh, the existing uh, documents, uh, we need to think about our approach. Well, actually, when you say that, it makes me wonder if the men who created the records were the ones who are ignoring women or if the, that effect is multiplied by maybe a male-dominated historiography mm-hmm. of the Ottoman Empire in contemporary period. Mm-hmm. So what I want to ask, thinking in a, in a broader sense about writing on women's literature in general, in Europe and other parts of the world. Uh, We have a bit more scholarship on this topic, for example, for for Europe. How did early modern Ottoman women writers uh, compare with their European uh, contemporaries? Mm -hmm. Well, I think uh, this is a very good question because uh, it gives us a perspective what's going on uh, in the world. Uh, I think we should start with defining what kind of poetry we're talking about. Because when we think about uh, religious poetry, throughout history, universally, uh, women produce poetry. And because there's no, um, they're supported, their uh, contribution in religious um, uh, literature was supported. But when we talk about uh, love poems, lyrics, romances, uh, that's a problem. Because this is, um, then we uh, get into the field of uh, love, um, business uh, of love. If we talk about uh, love in literature literature and women's uh, use of it, when we uh, compare uh, Ottomans in Europe um, at this time, I think there are a few differences. Um, for instance, uh, there's a very good study, actually, about this um, issue, uh, The Age of the Beloveds by Walter Andrews and Mehmet Kalpaklı. For instance, they compare European and Ottoman cities at this time, sp- uh, specifically Venice and Istanbul. Uh, they find striking similarities between these two imperial cities in the same t- uh, time period. That's the key issue. Um, from the way these cities are organized and the way they produce culture. The significant part of the Venetian court uh, and uh, was uh, women 
in the court. Mm-hmm. And these were the courtesan, courtesans, um, part of the uh, entertainment of the court. Um, this group of women are actually trained uh, to um, entertain um, and uh, get into um Ready conversation with um, statesmen, bureaucrats, whoever part of the court at the time. So these are the women who write uh, love poems uh, in Europe, and there are very famous ones, like for instance Veronica Franco. Um, so and then she uh, is um, acknowledged in uh, in the uh, literary circles uh, for her poetry. She uses her poetry uh, for her reputation to make more money. Um, so this is the case uh, in Europe. When we turn to Ottoman courts, things are different uh, because um, Ottoman women poets uh, are not courtesans. On the contrary, they're very respectful, respectful women. Uh, and the Teskira writers uh, are trying really hard uh, to pay their dues. I mean, for um, representing them as re- respectful women. Um, uh, and they're coming from educated and privileged families. And another important part is that they don't hide their uh, identities. They don't use pseudonyms or pen names. They don't use male names, for instance. Um, so it looks like uh, when we think about women in a larger context at this time, it looks like for the Ottomans, it's not uh, an issue for a woman uh, writing uh, love poems. Actually, there's a very interesting saying, very common saying at this time, when male writers talk about female uh, poets, they say, "Erkek aslan aslan, dişi aslan aslan değil mi?" A male lion is a lion, but is the lioness not a lion too? Uh, so it's interesting how they approach this issue. Well, that actually leads probably into the last question we're going to ask today: is everything you've been saying has stressed similarities between uh, men and women authors in the Ottoman Empire? But I want to know if. There's any special female voice that we can find in the Ottoman literature or any aspects of writing that were particular to women or maybe even uh, a subculture of women reading women in, in particular? That's a very good question, uh, and, and, and I will try to answer uh, this question without being too technical because I will need to talk a little bit about the poetics of uh, Ottoman literature. Um, the major difference a woman poet does is challenging the gender construction of poet and the beloved uh, in poetry. Traditionally, both the poet and the beloved have male qualities. Uh, a poet is a poet because he is brave enough to give up all the goodness of this world and dedicate himself for the search of love. So let's look at an example from Nejati. Nejati says, Er değil müsün Nejati? Olma dünyaya muti. Avretiken şu suretle muti olmaz ere. Nejati, aren't you a man? Don't give in to this world. Since it's a woman, in such form it never submits to a man. So this, you know, there are so many examples like this uh, where uh, being a poet uh, is defined with male qualities a poet needs to be manly. So manliness is the value uh, to be a poet. Uh, By the way, this world is also defined by uh, female qualities. So this is a world uh, who is a woman 
actually. The Blevitz, uh, on the other hand, uh, has female physical uh, appearances. In fact, it's androgynous. Uh, it's very uh, ambiguous. It's an ambiguous image. I should say, like, uh, ambiguous, but um, it's the ideal beauty or perfection. For that reason, mystical readings of this kind of poetry suggest that the beloved is God. Um, although this is challenged and proved uh, based on text today, uh, the prepubescent boy represents the be- perfect beauty. Uh, it's still, you know, there. These are two different uh, schools of reading, uh, two different approaches to uh, Ottoman poetry. So in a homogeneous system like this, a woman poet is marginal um, even before doing or saying anything. Besides, a woman poet who uses the same system and exists as a woman, that is to say, without disguising herself with a male name, uh, she still writes love poetry, uh, and that's the way she causes a rupture in the system. So she has a revolutionary potential here just by being a woman and being in the system and using the system. So when she uses the language and the system according to its rules as a woman, um, it's not the same language or a system anymore. Uh, In this way, her marginal position works as an advantage uh, from her standpoint, allowing her to subvert the dominant discourse uh, and insert herself as an alternative lover or a beloved. In other words, the subversion happens naturally uh, as her revolutionary potential stems from the essence of her uh, position as a woman within the dominant discourse. So uh, a woman speaker, a lover, a poet within the structure is actually naturally deconstruct the system. Uh, when she acts the role of the uh, female lover, because she doesn't conceal her gender uh, in poetry, love is not platonic anymore. Uh, It's uh, in the traditional sense. Uh, The construction of the male speaker, poet, lover, and idealized beauty challenged uh, by her um, existence, and there's a shift in the lover's uh, gender. This is the way... I mean, like basically, the basic uh, uh, in basic terms, uh, this is the uh, way uh, she challenges the system by just being a woman poet. Okay, so uh, I want to ask one last question. Uh, so, following up on what you said, is there a female tradition in Ottoman poetry? Uh, Well, I uh, don't find this question useful because, you know, um, there's no way of singling out traditions, male or female, I think. Uh, They don't exist by themselves, which also means they exist together. Um, So as if we accept that, um, you know, uh, defining a female tradition wouldn't be useful it would only mean like creating a dichotomy. And so um, I think more fruitful way of uh, looking at it uh, would be uh, trying to understand the dynamics between male and female uh, constructions and how they create each other, how they function together. Dr. Havlalı, thanks for coming here today and, you know, uh, making a podcast with us. We have learned a lot. It was such a a joyful conversation. It was a pleasure. And uh, it was our pleasure as well. Thank you. And uh, for more information on those who want to learn more about the subject, there's going to be a short bibliography uh, on the webpage. They can consult 
sources. Thanks, thank you for listening to us. That's all for this episode.